What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Lexi Frydenberg is a general paediatrician specialising in the care of children from birth to age 18 who experience a wide range of acute and chronic medical conditions. Currently working in paediatrics at the Royal Children's Hospital in Victoria, Lexi also teaches and mentors paediatric trainees and is the co-host of an awesome educational podcast called the Kids Health Info Podcast. A mother of three, Lexi is passionate about child and family-centred care, but also about finding the balance between professional and personal life, especially in a pretty complex pandemic world. And today we're lucky enough to have Lexi here in the studio with us. Welcome, Lexi. Thanks, Matt. So, Lexi, you are from an extraordinary family and your family of origin has numerous people with a public profile who I guess I would describe as high achieving. Tell us a bit about your family and about growing up and how this pattern's impacted you. My family, we've grown up in in, um, Melbourne and my father is a very successful surgeon and my mother's a very successful professor, associate professor of psychology. My brother's in the public profile in politics. You know, my family is incredibly close and incredibly um, loving and supportive. So when my brother and I were growing up, we didn't we both didn't feel any pressure to achieve but our role models were very high achievers they had an incredible work ethic but the positive about that was they both loved and still loved to work so we grew up in a family where people loved working we worked hard but we played hard and we didn't feel too much pressure um, as young people. So I think both my brother and I just followed our own passions, which are very different, um, but our parents have been incredibly supportive the whole time. I wonder how that plays out for, for you as a parent. Are you carrying those themes forward? Yeah, it's really interesting. I have three kids who are incredibly different in, in their interests. Um, unfortunately for me, none of them want to go on and do medicine because I'm passionate about my career. But um, I think I'm support. Well, they might say otherwise, but I think I'm quite supportive. But I certainly don't push them, uh, or try to push them in any particular direction. Um, and I'm very conscious of not making work the be all and end all. So you know, they um, all have other interests apart from schoolwork, and I think that's brilliant. And they also have a very broad range of friends. So I think I'm quite a open-minded parent Um, and luckily my husband actually is very open-minded as well and I think we try very hard to have very open conversations Um, but I think that stems from my own family of origin we were very open at the dinner table I don't think I hid anything from my parents my whole life. Wow where does that incredible work ethic come from in your family of origin? It's really interesting and I'd have to ask my parents so my mum my mother came um, from Hungary and she was in um 
the war in the Holocaust. So when she moved to Australia, she, you know, her parents were very poor and they really valued education. And it's a very common story amongst um, Eastern European you know, immigrants and refugees. So education was incredibly important and she loved learning and she just worked really, really hard throughout her high school years and then really discovered, you know, education and psychology and had such a passion for it, which she still does. But I think it probably stems from her parents not being able to follow their own interests and curiosity because of where they came from. My father's family also came from Eastern Europe. They came from Poland, but my father was born here. But once again, they worked in haberdashery. Um, They never really got to follow their dreams and paths because of um, their situation. So, you know, sending my father to university um, was really important for them and he found his passion in medicine. Wow. So education has really been that ticket to that that new life and opportunity. There's so much that's been written about, I suppose, the intergenerational impact of of the Holocaust on the lives of the next generation. And so your second or third generation, and it's a a very complex topic, obviously. How has it played out for you? Look, I think education and hard work has always been valued in my family. And they are a family of go-getters, so we are not particularly good at slowing down or stopping (laughs) or taking breaks, which you can probably relate to. It was okay, you know, it worked well to a point for me. I went through school, I went through medicine, I went through paediatric training, and, you know, I was doing fine. But at one point, about six, seven years ago, it all got too much. And I think that's not a common, not an uncommon scenario to get overwhelmed with, you know, too many glass balls juggling in the air. And so for me, my only way through it was just to push straight through it. I didn't have any other method of, sl- of knowing how to slow down or stopping or taking a break or giving up my work. So I just tried to keep pushing through that brick wall, which as we all know, doesn't really work. So I think I'd, I'd pushed through for a very long time successfully, what I saw as successfully, but it got to a point about six, seven years ago where it was really difficult and the overwhelm I don't really like the word burnout because it implies you know you have one or two of these events in your lifetime whereas you know I I just felt overwhelmed to the point where there was too many um, too many things going on that I couldn't keep you know juggling those balls in the air and something had to give so you know at the time I was working incredibly hard because I love my work I was parenting three kids I was trying to be a good wife I was being a sister a daughter I was you know a mentor and supervisor at work so so many different things plus that mental load um, of running you know predominantly running the household as well And it all got too much. And I didn't really listen to the clues my body was telling me. And so I, you know, probably had a lot of headaches, a lot of tiredness at the time. And it really took an illness. I was in the prodrome of of whooping cough, which I didn't realise at the time, meaning I was about to get whooping cough and didn't, I didn't really understand or I wasn't aware that that illness was um, triggering all the, a lot of the other sort of feelings I was experiencing. And then I just fell in a heap, which is not uncommon. And my story is very similar to many people's stories, um, definitely very similar to many doctor stories. 
But unfortunately, we often don't talk about it. Mm. So it's sort of that hidden story. And I can relate as a psychologist. You know, I often have people sort of assume, sometimes seriously, sometimes in jest, that I'd have all my shit together, that I've got all the answers that everyone's asking, that I have all the clarity, all the tools in the kit, whether that's as a parent, as a partner, as a friend in my career, in my health. Co-host. (laughs) (laughs) Co-host. <laughs> <laughs> no one's actually said that I had all my shit together as a co-host. <laughs> but clearly, of course I don't. And you don't, and neither do you, Mads, newsflash. None of us do. None of us I do. Don't. But I wonder how much some of this backstory that you've shared with us already around your family of origin and high achieving and also a passion for what you do, and you haven't made specific mention of it, but I imagine impacting the lives of others is very important to you. Yeah, look, I think there's something called the passion paradox, which I don't know if you know about, but essentially um, it's great to have passion, but sometimes too much passion can take you down, you know, a, a very dangerous path and you can work too much. And I'm very lucky. I would say I'm incredibly privileged to have found a career very early on in paediatrics that I love and that 25 years on, I still love all the aspects of my job. And I'm incredibly lucky to be part of a family's journey. So I see children from zero to 18. um, And I often see these families for many, many years until they graduate from paediatrics. So I'm incredibly lucky to be doing the work I do. But I also find that in paediatrics, especially, you do take on a lot of the issues of the children, the young people, but also of their families. And I don't think we're particularly taught well Mm. on how to set boundaries. Mm. And there's not a brilliant support network in place, particularly in paediatrics. In psychiatry, um, peer supervision and peer support is essential and it's prerequisite. In the corporate world, a lot of people get coaching and support. Really in in paediatrics and in a lot of medicine, there is employee assistance and counselling but only once you reach crisis point. Mm, mm. And so I think that's a real issue and and I'm very interested in the well-being of doctors and it's another sort of passion area uh, amongst many. But I am worried that, you know, we do take on a lot of families' issues without having the supports ourselves. And also the expectation on doctors or health professionals, I mean, even psychologists, uh, Sabina, obviously, that you're some sort of sage and, and that not only do you need to have your shit together, but that you also are, are able to be just loaded up repeatedly. And, um, and yeah, where's that uh, kind of white flag you can wave to say, actually, there's enough here. I, I can't actually keep loading myself with this. Absolutely. And I think as you were talking, Sabina, about, you know, people you know expect you to have it all and have all the answers, I had that image of the swan graceful above the water and underneath the water, the feet going a bit crazy. And that's many of us much of the time and particularly in medicine. And I do think it is important to to be that graceful swan in some situations. So when you're in a resus situation, when you're dealing with an emergency, you do have to be confident, stoic, you know, be a real leader in that situation. And I think as doctors, many of us do that quite well. What we don't do particularly well is talk about our feet going a bit crazy under the water. So I think, you know, we debrief after a difficult resuscitation or in my case, a non-accidental injury. We often debrief with our um, younger peers and our um, team, but we 
often don't show our own vulnerability a lot because we're expected to, you know, leave our issues at home and come to work as a leader and be stoic. And I'm not sure that that is that healthy. We have a huge issue with burnout in doctors. You know, the stats at the moment are, I think it's about 50% per year saying or reporting burnout. That's a huge issue because you know, in my mind, the people who go into medicine are really amazing people with passion, enthusiasm, vulnerability, humility. And, you know, along the way, they're working hard, they've got an amazing work ethic. But at some point, our systems are not supporting us. And there's this huge burnout. And unfortunately, you know, a a a significant number of suicides amongst doctors. Mm. So, it is an area I'm really interested in, but I also think as as doctors and leaders who have been in the business a while, I think it is important that we tell our truth mm. and do show our vulnerability. And especially you made mention that it was symptoms of whooping cough that you overlooked. And I know there'll be listeners saying or thinking, but she's a doctor. Surely she saw the signs. And, and that's what I want to share. And you've, you've articulated it so beautifully, Lexi, already, that sometimes the clarity you have in someone else's life, you don't apply in, in your own. Absolutely. I think I feel like I'm very good at diagnosing other people's problems and helping them problem solve. But, you know, looking at myself and my own health, my own mental health, I think, you know, doctors are incredibly, notoriously bad at identifying their own health issues. And I think particularly during the pandemic in the last two years, we've just kept going and going and going like ever-ready batteries. Oh, the exponential demands, everyone at the coalface of of trying to deal with the pandemic and the health system. Absolutely. um, All the data coming out is terrible. Yeah, there's a huge amount of adrenaline that we've been Mm. working on for the last two years and we've felt, you know, that we've had something to contribute. We've had a lot to contribute but probably at the expense of our own health. Um, and this is not just for doctors. This is for anyone at the coalface, healthcare workers, a lot of nurses, a lot of teachers. You know, I think we, we've really looked after others, but probably haven't looked after ourselves as much. But what's happening now, you know, because the pandemic is going to be with us for a long time, that a lot of the issues are, are becoming more clear and more obvious. And I think... We are starting to read the signs in our own bodies, the headaches, that, you know, fatigue, that exhaustion. And I think it's incredibly important that, you know, one of the take-homes is that we do start listening to our bodies because our bodies and our brains are incredible at telling us you need to stop. So so what are you going to do differently with that? Because six years ago you had a big wake up. Yeah. And then we're now referencing in the last couple of years, we've all particularly in your line of work been put under the pressure cooker or in the pressure cooker. What are you going to do differently? It's a great question. And, you know, over the last six years, I've done a lot of work on trying to work out how I can keep my career that I love, still be a good mother, wife, friend, and make it all sustainable. Because, you know, it will be very easy to get overwhelmed again and fall in a heap. So I have been, um, you know, getting a lot of support and talking through, you know, solutions, because I like um, solution-based work. But the things I am doing differently in the last few years is that I'm trying to slow down. I'm trying to listen to the cues my body's telling me. So if I get a headache, if I'm feeling exhausted, I'm trying to say no. Now, I'm a yes person, (laughs) as all of us are, 
but I'm trying to go, for now, you know, I'm at capacity. I can't take any more on. And, you know, it happened yesterday. I had had a huge week. I was exhausted and we had tickets to the footy and I absolutely loved the footy. I was going with my kids, with another family. And, you know, by Sunday morning, yesterday morning, I was exhausted. I could hardly put two words together. My natural instinct was to go, no, I've committed to this. I'm going to go. It'll be great. But I actually said no. And I said to my husband and kids, I'm actually going to stay in bed and watch, Um, which is very unusual for me. I probably regret it a little bit because my team did win by one point. Um, (laughs) So it would have been an amazing match. But I actually really enjoyed being at home, having time to myself and just listening to my, you know, to my body and to the cues. So slowing down, listening to my body a bit more, getting some external support and help, both through a coach and through a psychologist, being more open and honest with my family and and my friends, and also being more open and honest with my work colleagues. Mm. Um, You know, initially when I fell in a heap, I really didn't want many people to know. I was in a hole. You know, work was my therapy. I, I loved being able to get up, concentrate on someone else's problems each day. But, you know, I wasn't very comfortable showing vulnerability. But now, six years on, I'm much more comfortable. And, you know, if I feel like I'm getting overwhelmed or going down that hole again, I'm very honest about it. I also think, you know, the general things, getting enough sleep, trying to exercise, for me, getting out into nature. And and at the moment, I've been doing something called feel-good dips. So dipping in the ocean down at Elwood Beach on a Sunday morning has been brilliant. So, you know, really just trying to look after myself a bit more. But also, I've made a deal with myself that every time I want to say yes to something, an opportunity that comes up with, particularly in work, because I'm passionate about so many things... I have to say no or give something else up. That's been hard. And my coach has actually been really good on helping me with that, working out what I'm getting the least enjoyment or excitement from so I can put that on hold and come back to it later. But really only taking on new things when I've got capacity. What's an example of letting go of something when you take something new on? So I, you know, as you mentioned before, Mads, I um, started this Kids Health Info podcast with some co-hosts through the Royal Children's Hospital about two years ago. And, you know, it's been an absolute passion project and I love it, but it's been a huge learning curve. And there was no way I could take that on without giving something else up. So what I've decided to give up at the moment is one of my days in private practice at a clinic that I helped establish, which has been really hard to do because I actually love my patients, I love my colleagues, I love working in the practice, but I just couldn't juggle at all. So at the moment, I'm you know spending that one day that I was in private practice, I'm still doing one day, but spending that day trying to do the podcasts and doing other things with media and um, conferences and really just giving myself some space to think and create, which is not very common in medicine. No, especially when you've been working, you know, so hard in clinical work and, and in a health system that is pretty relentless in terms of the exponential needs inside that system, which is part of the issue really, isn't it? It's unrealistic. You said, Lexi, um, you'd like to keep a career that you love, but make it sustainable. And I wanted to just tap into that a little bit, um, just in respect of what we talked about before we started recording, which was we're all mothers. We have 
how many children between us? Nine, uh, all working, uh, working mothers. And I know men often don't get asked this question, but the reality is that often the burden of care or the responsibility often can fall on women. So in your case, if you think about your great drive to work and then, you know, this appetite you have for your career but wanting to make it sustainable, having, I assume, had to take some time out of the workforce for your three children, what is your sort of view on that where we think about that compound effect of the biological disruptor, if you like, that Annabelle Crabb calls it, where women do step out of the workforce and we see that playing out in terms of professional opportunities and careers? I'd love to understand how you navigated that and your thoughts about um, those choices to have kids when you're very driven for this big career. Yeah, look, I think it's a very interesting question and a dilemma that most women face. Um, I was probably fortunate that I did um, my medical degree, went straight into paediatrics, did my exams before I met my partner and had kids. I think there's a lot of people, women doing postgraduate medicine now, so they're coming to their specialties a lot older. And I think it is really challenging because many of them have young kids while they're trying to work and do exams. So in a way, I was fortunate. Having said that, you know, I was on a career trajectory. I thought I was going to be a super subspecialist. I was passionate, was going to do my PhD. But I fell pregnant while I was doing infectious disease fellow job. I knew because I had incredible um, what's called hyperemesis, nausea and vomiting, and, and it came out in the lab because the smell in the lab was too much. And essentially I had to stop working in each of my pregnancies and be in hospital for, you know, about three months, three days a week for at least for each of the pregnancies. Wow. Um, so that really took its toll. And then I actually wanted to be there for the first few months of my children's life. Now, not everyone will want to, and I really think it's up to the individual. Um, but I realised that I did want to be there, but then I also wanted to get back into the workforce at about six months. So really that took a lot of organisation and preparation. I think I'm fortunate that I have had a mother who's been an amazing role model. She has always worked throughout my whole life, but she's also juggled that work and parental responsibility incredibly well. Um, so I felt very comfortable going back to work at six months part-time. And I think paediatrics has given me that luxury of being able to go back part-time. But I also didn't have any guilt about getting external help. So I got babysitters and nannies from six months of age. So I'd know my kids were in really good care. Um, and I went off to work so I could be stimulated, so I could help other people, so I could have adult conversations. And I think that combination of being at home with my kids and um, feeling like I was available to them, but also having my career keep moving forward was really important to me. Now, that's not for everyone, but I think it worked. Um, and I repeated that with each of my children. I had time off and then went back to work at six months I think times are changing for the better in, in medicine in some specialties. So in paediatrics, over 60% of our trainees and doctors are female now. So we have become very good at adapting to the needs of women, I would 
I, I hope. Um, but we, you know, there is um, a lot of support when people are pregnant or take time off. Part-time training is very well accepted. Um, and I think we are really leading the way in that regard. Um, so I think times are changing, but not across the field. And certainly if we look at the surgical track, um, yes. there's still some issues just around the system design uh, where women are sort of well, they're not getting the earning opportunities or the leadership opportunities probably in those domains. Absolutely. And as you said, Beds, I think, you know, in the hospital structure, we probably have more women in our hospital, but in very different roles than, than many of the men have. So people who I trained with or who um, trained after me are now my clinical leaders and chief of medicine and, you know, really um, have really climbed that leadership pathway. We are seeing more women in leadership, particularly in paediatrics. Um, but as you said, there are many years we've put our careers on hold or working part-time. So there is a discrepancy between you know men and women in the workforce. Mm. On a personal note, um, so I'm married, as you know, to someone who's, who's in a surgical career and uh, probably the, about the same vintage as you, actually. Yeah, and we, we actually worked together at the hospital many years ago. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, and we've been together a long time and so I've had a front row seat to the demands of a medical career. Uh, it's a vocation and, and not just a job job, um, which you would well know. And we have four daughters, none of whom are considering at this stage going down the medical track. And in fact, some of their friends that I talk to sort of, uh, and, and broadly that generation look in at the demands of a career like like medicine and are sort of opting away from it because of its inflexibility. We know we need many more women and more diverse people going into it. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a young woman or, or a young person listening um, about how they can navigate the demands of that kind of career? That's a great question. I actually get quite a lot of phone calls from um, young high school students or people doing an undergrad course asking me my thoughts on being a doctor and particularly paediatrics. And I am incredibly passionate about my job and when I look back at you know many of my friends who did different career paths 25 however many 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 years ago um, they're often not working in that job whereas most of my friends who are doctors are still working in that job so I would be incredibly supportive and hopeful that really good people women um, people of diversity you know everyone chooses their own passion and if your passion is medicine then I would really recommend that you go down that path. I re it really upsets me when I hear that really good people are steering away from medicine because of the demands but I think we're getting a lot better and I think we're having very open conversations. I think the colleges and the leadership are aware that doctors are burning out and that our well-being is important. Um, and at least these conversations are starting. I think, unfortunately, in the public health system, we're very dependent on structures and, you know, hierarchy. And the public health system, you know, change is slow, as you probably know. But I think outside of the system, there is a, a lot of conversations and a lot of people um, talking about how they can have a very sustainable career in medicine. There's a brilliant group, and you know this is the group that in inspired me about three years ago to go down a slightly different path in my career called Creative Careers in Medicine. And it's a group that only started recently, but I went to a conference three years ago 
And they talked about portfolio careers, which is something I'd never heard of. I thought you graduated as a doctor, you became a specialist, you did that job for the next 40, 50 years, as my dad has done. But actually, it exposed me to a huge number of fascinating people doing interesting stuff. So there was a doctor who was a part-time doctor, part-time magician. There was a doctor, part-time ballerina. There was people interested in quality and safety, people interested in podcasting, people interested in media. And it really made me aware that there is so much more we can do. We don't have to stay in that same career the whole time. So right now, I have, you know, what's called a portfolio career. So I have three different roles. um, And it was because of creative careers in medicine that I sort of, those double doors were opened. And I got more interested in both coaching, which I hadn't heard about in healthcare, but also in media and medicine and sharing good quality information with um, parents and, and families. And that's the evolution of the Kids Health Info podcast. Lexi, I can hear the the passion that you have in the work that you do. And you've made references to falling down a hole. Can you help us understand what happened when you fell down that hole? What did that look like for you? Yeah, look, it is hard to, to think back and talk about it still, even six, seven years later, because you know, I I was so used to showing strength and and not showing vulnerability. But when I got sick, when I got whooping cough, when I um, realised that I was so fatigued and exhausted, I started having panic episodes, which I'd never previously had. I'd never suffered from anxiety that I was aware of. Um, And for anyone who's suffered from a panic episode, it is incredibly frightening and horrific. Um, And I still have what's called anticipatory anxiety when I'm put in situations that I might fall down that hole again. Um, So I've had, you know, multiple panic episodes since then. Um, But at that time when I was really bad, I really found it hard to just keep moving. So work was probably my saviour. I did get up and go to work and and deal with other people's issues. I could do that. But when I was left in my own head, that's when, you know, that's, that's the part that I found incredibly hard. So I did get a lot of professional help. I had an amazing family. Um, a really supportive husband and an amazing mother who thankfully is a psychologist. So, you know, she just sat with me for a long time and just helped me slowly, slowly come out of that hole. Um, But for a long time, I really didn't feel like going out, socialising, exercising, you know, talking to my friends, doing the things that used to bring me joy. And really, the only thing I could do was go to work and deal with other people's issues. So look, it, it was a traumatic time. And, you know, as I said, I'm fearful, you know, of falling down the hole to that degree again. But there are many moments where I still have overwhelm. And I do try and um, just slow down, say no, go into nature, you know, put my feet on the sand, take deep breaths and, you know, all the techniques that we know can help panic episodes and anxiety. And when we reel off that list, you know, you could almost hear your eye roll as you reeled off the list. And I feel like I've got a lot of friends and clients go, yeah, touch the sand and be in the nature, you know, like, <laughs> but, but we know, yeah, we know it does work. The research tells us it works. Our lived experience tells us when you ask a room full of thousands of people, what helps you recenter and recalibrate the same responses every single time, but we're so slow to learn. Absolutely. 
And I think sleep. You can't underestimate sleep. So, you know, sleep deprivation, I always say to new parents, sleep deprivation is a form of torture. And I think we can all recall back when we had our own kids, you just can't think... Um, you can't talk in sentences. You can't really do the things you want to do when you're sleep deprived. And unfortunately, one of the you know effects of panic episodes and anxiety in general is it affects sleep. So really trying to get that sleep was incredibly important for me. Uh, in trying to, you know, get out of that hole. Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing with that um, candor and honesty because. As we've already touched on, I think when you're a health professional, particularly a paediatrician, there's this expectation. And so I think it's it's really powerful, not just for your colleagues, for your patients, for your friends, for everyone, regardless of the role that they play in society. I think it's important. But I've got another question with your ped hat on. We hear it's not about your story. It's actually a, a, ped, a ped ped question. Is that a capital P? Yeah, <laughs> that's a bit easier to answer. <laughs> well, we're hearing so much, particularly about, and I know clinically I see in, in my work, an increase in the number of young people on the spectrum and also ADHD. Could you share some of your insights on what's happening yeah, look, I think um, it's a very complex story that's evolving and uh, with autism spectrum disorder, some of it is about increased awareness, um, the increasing numbers, some of it is about a change in, in the terminology. So people who were previously um, labelled in inverted commas Asperger's syndrome are now part of autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, the numbers are increasing, but we actually don't know why. It's multifactorial. With ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and ADD, which is Attention Deficit Disorder, we are also seeing significant numbers of young people across the globe experience that. And it's really hard to work out why. I've actually just read, and you may have read, um, Johan Hari's new book called Stolen Attention. And it's really got me thinking a lot about the systems, the world we live in. You know, it's really hard as an individual to pay attention. And an individual, a child who's in a busy classroom with 30 plus kids, lots of background noise, expected to sit still for hours on end, not getting that much exercise and that many breaks, not sleeping particularly well, potentially on technology multiple hours a day. It's not surprising that our attention across the board is suffering. It's easy to point out the issues. The harder part is to work out what to do. And so reading Johan Hari's book and just starting to think about it a bit more, I think there are so many things we need to do in medicine and paediatrics, in psychology, as teachers, as, as, you know, as parents to try and help our kids get back on track. Because I actually am really worried looking at my own kids and looking at this generation of young people, it's really hard for them to pay attention. I don't think many children can sit there and read a book for a long, an extended period these days. I don't know if you've tried to watch a movie. I haven't been able to really watch yeah. a movie at a cinema for two hours anymore. So I think it's as an adult, true. as an adult, because I'm also mm-hmm. seeing an increase in ADHD or ADD diagnoses in adults in, in my clinical populations Absolutely. Or, or clientele saying um, they had, they didn't even recognize when they were younger, but now all of these signs seem very yeah. applicable. Or is it obviously multifactorial, but is it that the world has sped up 
Oh, absolutely. We, we, we know that. And yep. in an era of globalisation, we've got technology rampant amongst us. We've Is it that the diet we're feeding ourselves in terms of daily inputs and, and technology just, it's so insidious with oh, our young absolutely. people. Is there much that you've seen in terms of research around the effect of technology and con- consumption of content and, and correlation then with some of those Yeah, look, there's a lot of conversation around that, about technology, about how long children are on technology. I think a lot of the research is talking about trying to work out what your kids are consuming. So it's not about the length of time they're on technology or social media. It's about what they're consuming and having conversation. As you know, Mads, tech isn't all bad. There's a lot of good things about technology. And it's really about, um, you know, for our kids, juggling their use of technology for good Um, the use of technology for social interaction, which has been incredibly helpful during the pandemic and during a lot of lockdowns, but also juggling that with other things that are important for our body and our mental health, um, such as exercise and getting out into nature and free play and good nutrition. So I think there is a lot of research um, at the moment about technology, but I don't think we've got all the answers. Mm. Well, Yeah, and look, I hope it continues that research so we do start to understand the unintended consequence of our technology usage at a time when every shiny new thing seems to just, you know, come rushing into our lives. And the pandemic of anxiety that we're seeing in young people and teenagers, which has been associated with with social media, um, in that domain, I mean, what advice or, or thoughts would you have for parents who are trying to manage technology usage amongst their young people? Our advice during the pandemic was probably a lot different than our advice now. So during the pandemic, we were really worried, um, particularly here in Melbourne, uh, where we had extended lockdowns, we were really worried about the mental health of our young people. And it's really playing out now. We've got a lot of post-pandemic or um, effects. We're seeing a lot of mental health issues, eating disorders, you know, it's probably going to have very long-lasting effects, unfortunately. So during the pandemic, you know, as parents, we would often say, and as professionals, you know, if your children are connecting to other children on social media, if they're engaging in education online, that's a good thing. Now that um, the extended lockdowns have eased um, and, you know, children probably haven't moved on from spending that amount of time online. I think it is important as health professionals, as parents, that we gently encourage our children to get back to other activities that are offline. Um, And, you know, exercise and free play and just going down to that park, meeting the other neighbourhood kids, learning to have fun, being creative again, I think that's really important. One of the challenges that we have as parents is not getting back on that hamster wheel of, you know, really scheduled activities. But one of the challenges our kids have is not spending too much time on their devices because it's what they've been used to for Mm. the last two years. Mm. They need a portfolio childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good one. Good one, Mads. Um, If we've got listeners who are interested in learning more about this, we had a great conversation with psychologist Jocelyn Brewer who talked a lot about um, the diet, the tech diet that we feed our kids. And I do want to reiterate, because I know sometimes when you listen to a pod, it's not like reading a book and you can't go back several pages, um, that Johan Hari's first book, um, Lost Connections, and then the book that you've just talked about, Stolen Focus, his work is incredible. He is an English journalist. And I love that it takes a journalist... Mm. Not a health professional mm. um, to bring such succinct 
information and and yet a refreshing new way of thinking. Lost Connections really impacted me deeply because I felt, I guess, validated in what I've believed and felt as a as a psychologist for years that so much around anxiety and depression is is a reflection of our disconnect with each other and with ourselves. And is it about how humans? come together or yes or, yeah. yes mm. and when we tell ourselves the story that and I, Lex you might have different ideas on this with a, a more orthodox sort of medical viewpoint but um, if we say my hard wiring I'm hardwired to have depression or I'm hardwired to have anxiety or it's in written in the stars because both my parents would have we overlook the the social um the power of sociability and connection that is non-negotiable for humans. And then we wonder why we feel depressed or sad or hopeless and why we feel anxious or worried or a yearning. Absolutely. And I loved Johan Hari's, I think it was his second book, The Lost Connections. I think over the last two years, that is what many of us have lost. Mm -hmm. And so really just trying to help ourselves and our kids slowly come out of the bubble we've been living in and slowly reconnect with humans Mm. in person slowly getting back into sports, slowly socialising again. I think it is hard to go from where we were to, you know, back to, you know, a very, very busy active life. I think it is anxiety provoking for many people, but I think it is important to get those connections back. Mm. Um, And once again, I I agree with you about Johan Hari's book about um, Stolen Focus. I think I've got his books wrong, but yeah, Stolen Focus – He spent three years researching this. He spoke to many, Mm. many, many people around the world, top academics, health professionals and others, but he managed to get this information and bring it to the forefront in a very user-friendly way. He was brilliant at translating it. So I think most of us could easily understand what the key issues are, but he also talked about a few solutions on an individual level but also on a broader um, society level so yeah I would highly recommend that book as well Mm. that sounds amazing it reminds me you know when we think all of us we all live through the Melbourne lockdowns and and there was a lot around yes connection and disconnection and and the world became very small in a funny sort of way it crystallized into whoever was just in your zoom call or in your household and there was a beautiful poem that was written at the time by um, John O'Donnell who's an Irish poet which captures humanity being trapped away and then emerging slowly into the world afterwards and being very careful around re-establishing those connections. Can I indulge you with a quick reading of it? Yes, we like poem time. It's not very long. It's called When, and he wrote it in 2020 at the time at which we were all, you know, the whole world was grappling with where we were at. When. And when this ends, we will emerge shyly and then all at once, dazed, long-haired, as we embrace loved ones, the shadow spared, and we weep for those that gathered in its shroud. A kind of rapture, this longed-for laying on of hands, high cries as we nuzzle, leaning in to kiss and whisper that now things will be different, although a time will come when we'll forget the curve's approaching wave, the hiss and sigh of ventilators, the crowded makeshift morgues, A time when we may even miss the old world arm's length courtesy, small kindnesses left on doorsteps, the drifting idle days and nights when we flung open all the windows to arias in the darkness, our voices reaching out, holding each other till this passes. That's beautiful. Goosebumps. It's beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) And it really resonates, doesn't it? I think, um, 
you know, there were lessons we learned during lockdowns, extended lockdowns, um, you know, as professionals, but more importantly, as parents and, and as humans. And I think it's very easy to get back on that hamster wheel. Mm. And I think it's really important and helpful if we can write down and try and remember some of those lessons, some of those simple things we all did, mm. you know, often you know, having dinner with our kids, mm. you know, just going for a walk when you're allowed to walk 5K around the block. And, you know, that kindness of other people, of your neighbours dropping food, you know, of just reaching out to someone you hadn't spoken to for a while. Like if we can channel all the good that came from that and and move it forward, I think, it, you know, it will be, mu- will be much better for it. Mm. Yeah, I find it concerning when people talk about when do we get to go back where we came from because we're not going back and nor should we because evolution and growth would, would suggest why would we go back to where we've been. As you say, Lexi, how do we take the lessons and actually embed them in our lives moving forward? I think this is actually a good place to ask you our final question on human cogs, which we ask all our guests um, amongst the complexities that we're talking about. We, we like to ask, who do you think is doing human well? Oh, that's a big question. I actually think the kids, this generation of kids, my own children, my, my friends' children, they're a lot more insightful, more progressive and more aware of society and of themselves than I think we were as kids. So I think we are raising a generation of kids that are going to turn out to be fantastic, emotionally intelligent um, adults. And right now, I think, you know, through the pandemic, they're doing human much better than many adults. Mm. They're our greatest teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.